This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Dan Ellsworth is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Born near Los Angeles in Southern California, Dan served a mission to Brazil, then graduated with a BA in International Studies from BYU. He currently works as a technology consultant in the Charlottesville, Virginia area, and has a strong interest in biblical studies and gospel teaching. Married with two children, Dan serves in his bishopric. Along with his wife, Julie, Dan serves on the Mormon Studies Council at University of Virginia. I'm Tara McCausland, and I'd like to extend a welcome to our listeners and a very warm welcome to you, Dan. Thanks so much for being with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I was just saying to Dan how jealous I was that he was in Virginia right now enjoying the the beautiful cooler weather and beautiful leaves while we roast here in St. George. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I definitely love it here. Just to start right in, Dan... What experience or experiences would you cite as the primary foundation for your early testimony? Um, I so first of all, I, I I was very growing up. I I was kind of hostile toward the church when I was little. Um, just wanted nothing to do with it, um, and I was just kind of a troublemaker kind of kid. Um, and but I had I I. I really had kind of a turnaround right around the age of 13, not a complete turnaround. I was still kind of a jerk, but um, <laughs> I, uh, but I did actually at that point uh, at that age, I, I just kind of came to a realization that um, being a troublemaker and being rebellious, I, I was just a miserable kid. Um, and I was just, wondering if there's a better way to be <laughs> a happier way to live and and there there came a point where i i was just questioning and i i received what we would call a testimony of jesus christ and and that was a a formative experience for me it was something that i couldn't deny um immediately went and told my cousin about it as soon as it happened but it was it was the kind of experience where, um, you know, we describe where somebody is just overwhelmed. I, I was overwhelmed with with a sense of peace and joy. Felt like everything bad I had ever done in my life was no longer relevant. It was gone, <laughs> and I I just couldn't feel angry at all. And um, very powerful experience. But you know, I. I kind of uh, just kind of went back to listening to Pink Floyd and whatever, <laughs> whatever I wanted to do. And I didn't, um, I, I changed in a lot of ways after that. Um, and I, I became a better member of the church, but still much more interested in rock and roll and, you know, my rock band that I had than, than church stuff. Um, but I ended up serving a mission. Um, that was a very, very, uh, again, another 
very formative experience for me. Um, I had a mission president who was very tough. He was super strict. Um, and I needed that. Uh, having grown up in Southern California where um, just being a slacker is kind of acceptable uh, where I grew up. <laughs> and, um, you know, I needed a mission president who was really tough and he was, um, but also just incredibly inspired. There were, I, I had a lot of experiences watching him uh, do things, you know, the timing of things and, and decisions that he made. I couldn't deny that, that God was working with him. And I had experiences just doing missionary work that showed me that God is involved in the work of the church, especially missionary work. Um, and that, that carries a lot of weight for me uh, that, you know, um, as far as questions you can ask about, is the church true? Well, is God involved in missionary work? Because if he is, then that's a big deal. Yeah, the church is true. If God is, is involved in our missionary work, whatever that means for the church to be true. Right. And so, um, but I, you know, came home, went to BYU, and over the years, uh, uh, had had fewer of those kinds of experiences, um, and you know that. But but those were those were my formative ones. Um, <laughs> if you want me to get more specific, I can. <laughs> um, I there. Uh, there's one experience that I that I've told in in various settings, and um, when I was on my mission, early in my mission, I got really sick. Brazil is a place where, so I have a lot of really, or, or I had a lot of really bad allergies back then. And Brazil is a place where if you have allergies, you're just going to suffer. I mean, it's there's mold, there's dust and smoke and and all of these things, and and I got really sick. And I got homesick on top of that. And I just want, I wanted out. Um, I really, I was kind of depressed and drugged up on all kinds of drugs, you know, to, to help with my allergies. And I made an appointment to go see my mission president. And I was going to tell him, you need to send me somewhere, maybe home. That's kind of what I was hoping for, you know, at a minimum to a different place, because I look at me, I'm falling apart physically. Um, and that day, it was our P day, um, where we, you know, take a break from proselyte, uh, proselyting for most of the day, and you do your laundry and write letters and stuff. And so in the evening, I was, I was going to go. Uh, to talk to my mission president, have that conversation with him. And I kind of prepared myself to tell him this bad news. And um, so we went to a, um, we went to a member's house for lunch, sat down um, and on her bookshelf, she had a Doctrine and Covenants Institute manual. She said, elders, you know, lunch will be ready soon. Why don't you sit down and and I'll let you know when it's ready. So we had a few minutes and I, I pulled this Doctrine and Covenants Institute manual off of her bookshelf and I just kind of was thumbing through it. And I saw a quote from Bruce R. McConkie that I 
thought was kind of interesting. And it was from a talk that he gave in April 1977 General Conference. And so when I saw this, it was 1994. Um, and, you know, this reference was to a talk that, that had been given in, in 1977. And so I thought it was an interesting quote. I jotted down the reference and I was like, hey, if I end up staying in the mission for some reason, I'm going to want my dad to send me this talk. So I, when we were done with lunch, we went back to our apartment. We wrote our letters home and I wrote a letter to my dad and said, hey, can you make a Xerox copy of this conference talk and send it to me? That was back when we used Xerox machines and stuff. And, and, you know, getting mail, uh, sending or receiving mail, you know, from Brazil to the United States, you're looking at two to three weeks on average, um, sometimes more. And, uh, but I wrote this letter to my dad, said, hey, uh, the, this, this is a McConkie talk from April 1977, please send it to me. And we went to the post office, sent our letters, and then we went back to our apartment after that. And the mail had arrived at our apartment and we opened it up and there was a member of my ward, a lady in my ward, who was extremely spiritually gifted. Um, she had sent me that talk, that Bruce R. McConkie talk um, from 1977. Yeah. So she said, hey, I was going through my old ensigns and uh, for some reason had a prompting to copy this and send it to you. Wow. I went to my mission president and I, I just kind of had my tail between my legs. Like, okay, I was coming here to tell him I, I don't want to be in this mission anymore, but now I'm just going to do whatever, <laughs> whatever he says, <laughs> because I just received some kind of a revelation. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, you know, I went to my mission president and said, Hey, I'm sick, but whatever you want to do, I'll be cool with it. And he he just sent me to a different area with a better climate, and I got better. Um, but, you know, 15 years later, um, after my mission, uh, there was, I, I accepted a calling in my ward. Um, and this was at a time when I was, I was kind of cynical. And so I'm kind of surprised that this even happened. But... <laughs> um, I accepted a calling and is to be a seminary teacher. And I, uh, I just got consumed with self-doubt afterwards. And I was going to go uh, talk to my bishop and tell him I can't do this calling. Um, you know, I know I said yes to it, but I, I just can't. You know, my testimony isn't very strong anymore. I'm just, I, I, I just don't feel strong enough to do it. And um that day at church, there was a, I, I walked in and there was a pile of books and magazines laying around um, in, in kind of this corner of our building. And, uh, and I walked by it and on the very, very top of that pile was the May 1977 ensign that has that <laughs> top. I said, all right, I guess I'm going to keep this calling. I guess I'll do it. <laughs> So I didn't go talk to my bishop. I just did the calling. But I I grabbed that magazine and it's it it's framed. It's it's you know in my office now. So, <laughs> um, but you know those are experiences that have shown me that 
God is aware of me. God is involved in the work of the church. Um, very important experiences. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that you can serve a mission and not come away with that feeling that God is certainly involved. I know that I had that experience time and time again when I served and I know also that I could not have endured that experience without the help that I received from the Lord because it was so trying. And I can remember days when I, when I thought I am not going to make it another day. I am so frazzled, so tired. I can barely keep my eyes open. So I'm, I'm with you on that, Dan, that if God entrusts his work to 18 and 19 year old kids, it's clearly his work. If it's still moving forward. Yes, I um, but I love that story that you share and how that you'll, you'll need to send me this talk. This, this may, must be some talk <laughs> that it keeps just popping up. Um, when would you say was the first time that your faith was really challenged and tested? Oh, gosh. Um, honestly, you know, I, I can't say it was my mission. It, it, on my mission, I, I struggled with a lot of self-doubt a lot of the time, and I had really tough days, like you mentioned. But I, I never on my mission wavered in terms of my basic testimony of the gospel. Um, I had seen enough to where I could say I have an actual testimony of the gospel. I'm not just here, you know, um, out of team spirit, right? <laughs> I, I'm here out of personal conviction because of things I've personally seen. Um, so my mission wasn't that. It was, uh, there were just, I, I think during college, I got some exposure to, to complexity. And you, we, we talk about this a lot. And I love um, Bruce and Marie Hafen's book, Faith is Not Blind, because they talk about how we grow up with, and, and even serve missions and do a lot of things with a, a conceptualizing things in very simple ways. Prophets, revelation, scripture, um, the church. All of these things we have very simple definitions for, and those definitions work for us for a long time. But then what happens when you're at BYU and you're in a Doctrine and Covenants class and you learn that, wait a minute, early church members had a worldview and they were not always, you know, <laughs> correct about things that they thought. And, um, you know, some of the leaders made some pretty big mistakes and, and, how do you process that? And, and um, so I, I came away from BYU kind of unsettled um, in some ways. Now, fortunately, there, I, I had a bishop when I was at BYU who gave a third hour lesson one time about the concept of paradox. And that was a game changer for me, um, learning about paradox and how you can have two things that seem like they're in strong conflict but are both true and you can you can deal with that you can work with things that are seemingly opposed to each other yet both true and um that that's part of the gospel it's 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 something we need to embrace we don't need to fall to pieces when we find when we encounter a paradox that was a huge, huge blessing for me when he taught that third hour lesson. In fact, I made an appointment with him after church to come and talk with him and say, thank 
you for i mean he he brought me back to life spiritually with that lesson i i just felt so invigorated from it but you know i i had seeds of not necessarily doubt but just questions like gosh you know um i didn't know this about joseph smith i didn't know that brigham young you know was sometimes kind of mean <laughs> what what we would consider it you know compared to russell m nelson or, or certainly thomas s monson this super kind-hearted person we consider a prophet man brigham young was rough and the people around him were kind of rough um and just um you know they they had a frontier worldview uh, uh, and how do you how do you process that when i've always thought that you know a prophet is somebody who has everything figured out they they worldview isn't even an issue with prophets right it's they just kind of sit down and the revelation happens and they record it and there it is and god spoke it um and then you know you find out that there is a a personal layer a lot of times with revelation and you know um that those things i i just came away unsettled and over years up until gosh up until i was about 40 i just had more and more things make me kind of unsettled like i i i don't feel really confident in this and that and and i was starting to get cynical and and we can talk more about that. I, I think that's an important concept. But I don't think it was any one specific thing. It was just over the years, kind of Chinese water torture, drip, drip, drip. That's complex too. I thought it was simple. Oh, that's complicated. No, I, you know, I want my simple definitions back. And so, yeah, I, I can't say it was any one specific thing. It was just a lot of little things that added up over time. So for you, you felt like, yeah, it was just building over a period of time. Yeah. Um, too many questions, too many things that you couldn't find easy answers to. And and I wanted to say before I ask the next question, um, that concept that you talked about, both paradox and and you can't take the personality out of the prophet. Um, I think that's been one of the things that for me, as I have familiarize myself more with church history uh, and, and with the the early years and the early prophets uh, in the church I'm I've at first that can feel really hard um, but I'm recognizing more and more how much culture impacts each of us and we can't we can't take a, a person out of their culture uh, whether it's now or 200 years ago, that we have to always take that into account because regardless of how we think we may may or may not be influenced by what's going on around us, we are. And prophets are no different. But I think once I got comfortable with that idea, uh, I I was okay with the fact that Brigham Young was a bit of a rough guy, but I thought it needs, it. you, you got to have somebody full of grit and toughness to do what he did <laughs> yeah. and so anyhow i think that's a great point that you bring up and i think every person is going to have to come to terms with the fallibility of prophets 
in order to maintain a, a testimony in this time, in this day and age. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, but we all have unique faith journeys to take in this life, and that might include some very unexpected twists and turns along the way. You've been very open about a personal faith crisis that you went through. Apparently, as you described, it was building, and apparently it reached a tipping point. Um, but can you can you tell us about that experience, about that that faith crisis, perhaps how that started and how you navigated that rocky road? Yeah, so um, it started when I, I started reading biblical scholarship. Um, and this is a point of faith crisis for for some people, probably not as 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 much as a lot of other issues. But um, I was a Sunday school teacher and I wanted to prep to teach um, Old Testament. And I said, OK, I'm going to read some biblical scholarship. Well, there are a lot of unbelievably brilliant biblical scholars who disagree at foundational levels <laughs> with how we conceptualize scripture um, and reading stuff that they had written. I was not prepared for it. I didn't know how to process it. And my, my sense was, oh my gosh, you know, how, how am I going to process this? And is the church just clueless about this stuff? And um, it, I, I, that was when everything came crashing down, like all the little things that had built up over time came crashing down. And um, it, it was horrible. You know, some, when somebody goes through that, the, we, we often call it the dark night of the soul. Um, it's just this feeling of, I, I have no idea how to make sense of my previous spiritual life. Um, for some people, they, they didn't really have much of a spiritual life, um, but I did. I had, you know, I saw miracles. And um, how do I process all of that if the church is clueless about all this scholarship and their um, and, you know, there's there's that common accusation that you hear that the church hid its real history and stuff. And and I think that's an overstatement. I think I think there were uh, leaders of the church in the past who were, you know, trying to be protective of people's testimonies. And so they kept things back that that they thought might have, um, you know, people might not have been prepared for. Um, and I, I don't see I don't see maliciousness with that. I see somebody making making kind of an ethical judgment about okay, you know, is are, are people prepared to hear how how rough Brigham Young was, for example? Um, would it destroy their testimonies? Is it worth it for them to hear that he you know he swore sometimes and and whatever and um, you know, that's so so I that that didn't really make me uncomfortable. What what made me really uncomfortable was this perception that the church is just ignorant about so many things having to do with scripture. That was my perception. I, I no longer hold that perception. Um, 
but it took me a long time to work through that. And um, so that was in the, that was in, gosh, probably the 2013, 2014 timeframe. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I thought about it. I said, I, I'm so unhappy that I need to do something and I just, I can't keep doing what I've been doing. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can even stay in the church. That was what I, that was how bad I felt. Um, but I decided, so, so I had spent a year from 2005 to 2006 in Baghdad, um, during the war, um, working on some stuff for the department of defense. And, um, I, when I went out there, I decided I was going to fast every week when I was in Baghdad because I just knew how difficult it would be there, how how many temptations I would face and stuff. And so I I had decided to fast every week, and and it was it was a great thing for me to just learn that basic discipline of how to fast. Um, and so when I went through this faith crisis, I said, okay, I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to start fasting every single week. Um, and this was summertime. And I said, I'm, I'm going to fast every single week until the end of the year. And if nothing has changed, I'm going to be at a decision point of like, am I able to stay in the church or not? I'm not going to make that decision now. I, I said, I'm going to fast every week. I'm going to do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. These things that we just say you're supposed to do. Uh, to keep your testimony. You're reading your scriptures, fasting, praying, and serving. I'm going to do all of those things to the best of my ability and just see what happens. And if nothing has changed by the end of the year, I'm going to make a decision. And I don't know where, I don't know which way that's going to go. And that was scary, but I, I kind of needed to, to have that ultimatum. And things did change. I, I didn't, I didn't have a, a big revelatory experience before the end of that year. But at one of my darkest moments, a friend of mine who I never talked to ever, um, he, he uh, reached out to me just out of the blue. Like, we don't, we, we, we'll go for years and years without talking. Um, reached out to me out of the blue and said, hey, for some reason, I felt like I needed to check on you and see how you're doing. Um, you know, to have that happen in a really, really dark hour <laughs> is, uh, it's significant. And that's what happened to me. And I, that was something, but there were other experiences that I had that just made me say, you know what, I think I can keep going a little while longer. Um, that February, um, the Richard and Claudia Bushman and Terrell and Fiona Givens came to town in Charlottesville. I was able to have dinner with them and, and just strike up friendships with them. And, and, um, you know, Richard in particular, um, just, we, we became good friends and, uh, to be able to bounce ideas off of him and, and talk with him, that was immensely helpful. Um, and so that there were little, uh, just little points of progress along the way where I felt, wait, I can keep going. I can keep going. And, and uh, no massive breakthroughs, but little breakthroughs here and there. And I joined my ward choir, which 
um, sounds kind of crazy when I say how important it was to me, but that has been just huge for me. Um, there's something that music does to kind of prepare you and, and uh, allow your mind to go to some deeper places, allow your soul to go to some deeper places. It was healing for me, uh, just joining my ward choir. <laughs> there are a lot of ward choir directors that will appreciate <laughs> those words. Yeah, it, it sounds crazy. People are like, you know, how do I process this about Joseph Smith and this about the Book of Mormon translation and da da da. And I just say, join your ward choir. <laughs> and it sounds like I'm gaslighting people. Oh, you're just gaslighting. No, I'm not. I'm not. It it helps you go to music will help you go to some deeper places that um in your subconscious you'll you'll have kind of a different set of emotional resources in your in your questioning. And I mean that was just a huge, huge deal for me. Um but over the course of several years, and I really, really applied myself to study biblical scholarship. I, I live just up the road from the University of Virginia, and I found out that Virginia residents can check out books from the University of Virginia Library. So their biblical study, studies section has been kind of my home away from home, and I've read you know, some of the best biblical scholarship in the world. And now, and over time, I got to see how that system works. And so I no longer feel that, oh, the church is clueless or whatever. I just have like a better kind of higher level view of what's what's going on. And and that issue doesn't bother me at all in the least. I, I think a lot of different ways about things now, you know, my my definitions for terms are definitely very different, like like you and I just talked about, you know, when I think the word prophet, I, I think of a person who has a culture, who has a worldview, um, who has to interpret messages that come and make them relevant to the people around him or her. Um, and that's a different way of defining the term prophet than I defined it when I was little. And even when I was on my mission, that's new to me. Um, but, you know, adjustments like that are they're difficult to make and some people are just incapable of making them it's so disappointing but i i i think you know with my fasting and and the other things i was doing i i think my heart changed over time and and i've really come back to faith i'm not i i just i don't think you you need to settle for less than really coming back to faith and seeing the power of God in the church again and enjoying your church service and loving the people around you. You don't have to settle for less than that. You you can work towards that. Can I ask you, because I'm, I'm so impressed with the fact that rather than just washing your hands of the church and stepping away, that you were willing to experiment upon the word Know, do the things that we that we talk about in Sunday school to fast, to really dive into studying the scriptures. Um, what what do you suppose gave you the the wherewithal to do those things rather than just cutting ties? So so part of my calculation, part of my my equation in my mind was, if I were to deny the faith. I would have to deny my own experiences, 
And I would have to deny credible witness testimony of other people around me. Um, there are very, very credible witnesses who I have known over the years who have also seen the power of God in the church um, and have stories to tell, remarkable stories, story like Kirtland level stories. You know, um, there are. I, I would have to deny a lot of witness testimony if I were to deny my faith. And that would cause me a massive amount of cognitive dissonance. I, I'm not, that would, that would be horrible. You know, I would have to lie to myself and just ignore things that I have seen, things that credible, sober-minded people around me have experienced in the church. So that was part of the calculation. Um, but again, you know, these are, you can't work these things out entirely in your head. Um, you just can't. You have to go to some deeper places. And fasting will help you do that. If you learn how to fast, it's, it's just very, uh, I'll give you an example. There was one point where I had a biblical studies question that I was stumped and I was reading the best scholarship in the world on it. And it so conflicted with, you know, my perception of scripture and the church's perception of scripture. And um, I just had this question and I, I, I said, okay, Lord, I'm at a standstill and this is really eating me up. And I decided to fast. And um, so I did. And when I broke my fast at the end of my fast, I received a prompting that I needed to actually like put down the books and go out and serve in my community. Um, <laughs> and I hated hearing that. I didn't want that. I wanted an answer, you know. So I, I went out and, um, and volunteered for Habitat for Humanity uh, for a day. And it was just, I don't know what it did, but it just kind of changed my heart. And this brain teaser that had bothered me so much just didn't bother me anymore. Um, it's still there. It's a good question, but that's all it is to me. I don't, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't trouble me. And um, so, you know, but there were other, other times when I fasted and I just had these insights come to me when I broke my fast that just, you know, little breakthroughs here and there. And so I, I've really become a believer in it. And I, I fast a lot more than, than once a month now, just because I, I feel like I need it spiritually. I don't, I don't think everybody needs to, but I have kind of a rebellious spirit generally, so I need to do more things than probably most people <laughs> stay on the straight and narrow, honestly. Um, but yeah, I mean, so those are those those are the kinds of things that that helped me. If I were to try and work it out all in my head, there's there's no way I could do that. It would just be so frustrating, so intolerable. People who do that, I, I definitely understand why they leave the church. If, mm -hmm. if it's all just a bunch of algebra in your head, um, <laughs> you know, how can this be true if this, oh, it can't, I got to go, you know, mm -hmm. right? If, if it's all just a bunch of calculations in your head, um, man, I, I don't know how you work through a faith crisis like that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I could have done that.
Well, I think you sharing that will give others hope because I, I do believe in this concept of daily bread. I feel like your story of just these small breakthroughs that there was there was no angel moment, no you know road to Damascus for you, but that you you stuck it out, and the Lord took you day by day back to faith. And so I I really appreciate that because I know people in my own life who who may wonder, can I make it one more day? Well, yes, just keep going and believe in God's ability to bring you from one day to the next. And that's all we really have, right? So I love that. God will give us our daily bread if we're willing to trust in him, just one foot in front of the other. Dan introduced me to this concept of epistemology. I know that's a big, scary word probably for most of you. Um, And perhaps you can share that uh, in a moment. But what tools, apart from fasting, were most helpful to you through that process of re- rediscovering faith? Um, so epistemology is definitely one of them. And epistemology is, it, it's, it's a field of philosophy. So if you take philosophy courses in college, you'll, you'll probably delve into epistemology. And, and all it is is the study of how we know what we know. Like, how, why do you think you know something? Well, that's epistemology. Um, so we make decisions about, um, how we figure out what we know and in, in philosophy and epistemology, when you actually do, when you dive into it, they make a distinction between belief, justified belief and knowledge. So there are some things about the gospel that I just believe. I don't have any evidence really but I believe because it seems right to me. There are some things for which I have a justified belief, like maybe I know a witness of something, you know, a a credible eyewitness of of something. Um, And so I feel like my believing that thing is justified because I may not have personal evidence, but maybe somebody else does who I really trust. And then you have knowledge and, and knowledge is a, you know, I've, I've tried this. I I can document this. You know, it's in my journal. This happened. Um, you have personal experience. You've been able to verify it personally. Um, so that is epistemology. Um, those are just some basic concepts. But when when we are kind of young in the gospel, um, when we're growing up we decide what we believe basically by authority figures, our parents, our seminary teachers, our church leaders, and people who we think are experts. And, you know, they kind of tell us what we believe and, and hey, this is what I believe. Um, but what, what, as you grow older and your, your mind develops and your heart develops, you kind of, you benefit from from having a little bit more robust way of doing epistemology. And the way, one of the ways I, I talk about it is think of it as a round table, okay? And at that table, you invite voices. You invite logic. You invite experience, revelation, beauty, um, intuition, scholarship, um, uh witness testimony and you you invite all of these voices to sit at the table 
depending on what you're trying to figure out, um, you know, if you're trying to figure out whether you believe in a concept, you invite these voices to the table and you look for where they they are in agreement, right? Um, if I read something in the scriptures and uh, and I have no experience with it whatsoever, um, then maybe I just say, yeah, I, I believe that. I, I don't have any reason to disbelieve it. It's in the scriptures, whatever. But if I read something in the scriptures and I have experienced it personally and people around me have experienced it and then you have more and more voices at the table saying, yeah, this is true, right? You, you, you can say, yeah, I believe this with confidence or maybe even I, just, I, just, I know it. I've, I have personal experience with this thing. I know it. People around me know it. Um, and, and sometimes the voices are intention, right? Sometimes your experience conflicts with something that you read in the scriptures, especially with the Old Testament, you know, in some of these passages where, you know, a prophet does this and God immediately strikes him down. Well, is that how God works? Or might that have been just kind of the worldview of the person who authored that part of the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if the voices at the table are in tension, it doesn't mean you, you reject something outright. It, it may just mean, yeah, I'm a little bit tentative on that. I'm a, I, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in, in that concept. Um, that is a more mature way of thinking than just saying either I know something or I don't. Either something is true or false. It's with a more mature epistemology, we can say, yeah, I have higher or lower degrees of confidence about these gospel concepts. Um, and, you know, you can be comfortable with some ambiguity ab about things, which is something as you get older, you're, you're going to be confronted with. The Hafen's book is about that very topic, correct? Yeah, they they spend some time on epistemology there. Um, and on right now, ambiguity. Yeah, yeah, ambiguity is is a big part of of their book. And I mean, it's it's as you get older, you know, you <laughs> you sometimes have to transition out of some simplistic ways of thinking about things, and that's very hard. Um, in some cases, some people don't recover from that that process. Some people just mm -hmm. can't do it. Well, I, I appreciate that description of epistemology because I think that there are a lot of things that we we all have to look at when we're when we're looking at our testimony because there's there's never going to be one one thing that makes up our testimony of the of the gospel and of the church, and to to allow all those seats at the table to have a voice when we're struggling. And not say, well, in this case, I feel like I'm, I'm reading some history that's uh, incongruent with what I believed um, or what I think should have happened. And then letting that have the only say in whether or not you stay. Does that make sense? Right. right. Allowing, as you said, all of those different voices at the table, your own personal experience that uh, legitimate testimonies of, you know, like the, the the witnesses of the Book of Mormon and people around you who you love and trust, allowing those to also hold water uh, as you're, if you're struggling with your faith, rather than just focusing on one aspect 
and saying, I'm out of here because suddenly there is ambiguity and I don't know how to deal with this. So that's if, and I'll say to my listeners, if you're interested in this concept of epistemology, I will be putting some uh, links in the show notes and there are some great interviews that Dan has already done about epistemology and you can you can listen to your heart's content <laughs> about about that concept. But what would you say, how, how has your paradigm of the church, other people in or outside of the church shifted since coming out of a faith crisis? So part of it is I, I just take way more ownership for my church experience. Church isn't something that happens to me, right? I go to church and I say, Lord, what do you, what can I contribute here? Um, how can I bring the, the healing power of Christ into this corner of the vineyard where I go to church? Um, I, whereas before it was like, okay, church, impress me. And if you don't impress me, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to go home and I might just turn on football, you know? <laughs> Um, and it, I was, I felt like I was some passive recipient of my church experience. And it's a very different mindset when you say, Hey, I, I can contribute to this. I, um, I'm part of the equation here, right? Um, the, it's not the church's responsibility to, uh, to make me happy to, <laughs> provide every opportunity for service to explain everything to me. It's not the church's responsibility. I have so much autonomy. Um, and that is, it, when you feel empowered like that, um, it, it's a big deal. You know, your, your church experience is transformed. When you can walk into church and instead of saying, oh, I hope all these people around me meet my expectations, today, right? Instead of saying that, you just say, Lord, help me to see the people around me the way you see them. You know, major, major shift in your possibilities and, and the resources that you'll have at church. Um, so there, I feel a lot more autonomy, a lot more responsibility, and the result is church is joyful for me. I love it. I miss it when I when I miss church, <laughs> um, the sacrament is a huge deal for me. Um, you know, these are, these are big, uh, these are big shifts for, for me because I, I had grown kind of cynical, honestly, even before my faith crisis, I was, I, and cynicism is, is horrible. It's where you just take a negative, negative view of everything. And, it, it's a self-protection mechanism for your emotions. Like, oh, the church disappointed me in this. So to protect myself from being hurt again, I'm just going to assume the worst about everything. And I'm going to gravitate toward bad news. And, you know, that that is cynicism. And, you know, some people say that addiction is slow suicide. Um I think cynicism is slow spiritual suicide. It's it just creeps up on you over time and and you just become a negative person. So I don't feel cynical anymore. That's 
probably it's one of the greatest blessings of my faith crisis is I, I just don't I have very very little cynicism in, in me at this point um, but yeah I mean these are you know and then like I said just having more nuance which means you know detailed views about gospel concepts revelation and scripture and and prophets those are big changes what advice then would you give to leaders and or family members of individuals who are in a faith crisis? I would say do some work to learn uh, some difficult things, okay? If your son or daughter is in faith crisis, do some work to learn. Don't, don't dive into their world. Um, necessarily. Uh, you know, some kids in particular will go to YouTube and just get swamped with like really toxic, um, you know, presentations and accusatory materials about the church. You don't need to go there, but be open to changing your own paradigm and doing difficult things and in in making shifts in, in your own view of things. If if you have a very Superman view of Joseph Smith, read Rough Stone Rolling and go through the difficulty of, of seeing a human Joseph Smith who struggles and loses his temper sometimes and sometimes doesn't know what to do. And, and you know, read that and, and suffer a little bit um, so that you can relate to that person who you love. And you can say, yeah, you know, this is hard. You know, I'm I'm not where you are, but I I know what it's like to experience a, a big shift in my thinking, and it it hurts. Um, again, you know, there there is uh, there is a temptation in a lot of a lot of people who go through faith crisis and leave. They kind of want to suck you into their world, and you know, and. I, I say, don't do that. Uh, hold to the rod. <laughs> um, stay with your scriptures and and really learn to fast um, and make adjustments to your own thinking so that you can relate to some extent to that person. I really appreciate that. I think there's there has to be a healthy amount of um, uh, resilience and malleability in our testimony and, and views of the gospel uh, in this day and age in order for our, for our testimony to thrive and to grow. I think in times past, those who were kind of in that rigid space, the very black and white space, they, they could get away with living like that, living like that in the church because they weren't bombarded constantly with all of this information uh, that's just at our fingertips. But now, as we see, we can't live in our, our safe little bubble anymore. We do have to educate ourselves about these new nuances and these uh, am ambiguous topics in the church, I believe, in order to be able to sustain faith and, and to teach our children that so that when they're confronted with these difficult topics, they they have some experience to know how to deal with and process these these non black and white 
issues, whether it just be circumstantial experiences that they're having in their lives, or it's a doctrine or a practice or policy or historical element that's uncomfortable. So I, lo I love that, Dan, and I appreciate that, uh, that insight and that advice, because I think we all know someone who is in a faith crisis, <laughs> and it's a little tricky yeah. to know how to help them. It's hard. So my last question, and thank you, Dan, for all that you shared uh, at this point, but my last question is, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? I have seen enough to convince me, you know, kind of in the depths of my soul, <laughs> that the church is what it claims to be. And I, I, I really get it when people say, how can that be, you know, this relatively small organization, you know, uh, claiming to have this authority. And, and like, I really do get that. I, I get that it shouldn't be what it claims to be. I, I really understand those arguments, but I, I look at the evidence and I look at the witness testimony and I, I'm not willing to reject those things at all, especially when it comes to our, our temple worship. Um, Eliza R. Snow said the temple is evidence of the calling of, of Joseph Smith. The, the temple is, is it, if you ever dive into biblical studies, you'll soon realize that Joseph Smith was doing something either totally bonkers in building temples or inspired. And, and honestly, there's not a whole lot in between. <laughs> like, it's the craziest possible thing he could have done to say, let's reinstitute like temple worship. Um, and yet there's massive amounts of witness testimony that has emerged from temple service about things that people experience there. Um, and I'm not willing to lay that aside. Um, but it, it's, it's joyful. Um, you know, I, I have a, a happy engagement with the church. Um, I do feel an authentic union and, and connection to God. And um, so that's why I'm still rowing. And, and also I'm, I'm curious and I, I really think that there are some really amazing things ahead. Um, my own view is that the church, members of the church, um, need a turn in the direction of mindfulness and contemplation. And I think as we do that, the church is going to see just a, a much greater realization of its potential. Um, that's another topic for, for another podcast, but, but I think it's very important just to mention it. I, I think mindfulness is kind of a, a, a new frontier for a lot of people. And it's going to benefit the church in, in extraordinary ways. Well, thank you so much again, Dan. I've learned so much from you on this interview and in previous things that I've, that I've read and listened to from you. So keep up the good work. Okay. You're doing good, good things. Yeah, happy to help any way I can. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. 
Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.